How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jay. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 202. Got 202 for take two. Take two. I'm sorry, Zeke. Yeah, well, I, uh, that's, I don't think that's ever happened before. We recorded a solid, like, two minutes of podcast. Yeah. I'm going to keep the two in theme. And then I realized, oh, for some reason, my the volume my mic's recording at is astronomically uh, loud. and Consummate professionals. <laughs> But we do it. We do it for the audience. Yeah, how are you, Jake? I'm good. I feel a little embarrassed about that. <laughs> it's okay. But uh, it's the a, audience had look, to know. Look, we're, we're, we're going to be children at heart on the show, and, and children true. make mistakes. <laughs> Adults make mistakes too sometimes. Yes, they do. Yeah. As we'll, you know, as... explore with our film of the week. That's Speaking true. of our film of the week, mm. Jake, do you have any trivia from the film of the week, Pokemon the first movie? I... Yeah, Mewtwo Strikes Back. Mewtwo yeah. Strikes Back. Yeah, which... nah. I think we're just going to call it, for the sake of simplicity, we're going to call it Pokemon the first movie. Yeah. Because it's indeed the first movie. It's it's even the first version of its own movie. Mm. But I'm going to get a little deeper than I think anyone expected me to this early into there a Pokemon go. podcast. Um, and it's not the first time we've done a Pokemon podcast. We did Detective Pikachu way back yes. when, June of 2019. It's actually my birthday we recorded that episode. Good episode. I know. It was fun. It was really fun. But, no, I'm going to get real deep and talk about Norse mythology. It goes Whoa. in hand, of course, with um, you know, me playing God of War on the on the PlayStation. That's always handy. I'm, it's, I'm finding it hard to get into. I'm not going to lie. I'm not finding mm. a lot of time to play. And when I do find time, I play something else. But you're oh. really... So you're not enjoying the new God of War? I'm, en- I'm enjoying it, but not enough that I... I'm not actively thinking about it all the time. Wow. Like some films I saw earlier in the week, which I will talk about. But no, back to the Norse mythology. See, it kind of tied in. Mm-hmm. It kind of tied in. So Norse mythology actually introduced a concept that plays heavily into this film, the idea of um, the tears of life concept. I wrote in my document, the years of life. <laughs> it's clearly not what I meant to say. <laughs> um, where... Hermondor, I think it's Hermondo, the character, is asked by Odin to go to Helheim to ask the goddess of death to bring Boulder back to life, who had been, I guess, killed. And the trade-off is that she would do that if the entire world wept for him. This idea that if everyone cried and mourned over Boulder, she would bring him back to life. Now, I think it was one old hag that decided not to. So one person ruined it for everyone. <laughs> a much sadder version that, that well, doesn't we'll, play out in this film. Yeah, I was going to say. But I thought it was really interesting, especially because Team Rocket dressed up as Vikings halfway through this film. Yeah. So I think that was a very, very intentional callback to Norse mythology. So yeah. yeah. Very cool. That's very deep. Yeah, I know. I didn't expect a, it, but here we are. Great child film. Um, well, I'm going to talk a little bit about, and we'll probably have little bits of conversation. Obviously, mm. there are. This is a English dub. Yes, of course. And what is really interesting when we talk about dubs is how they can actually change, particularly with animation. Mm. They can change the way characters are shaped, the way they act. The way, yep. Because obviously, the English dub has to sort of line up with the story of the Japanese version, mm. but. Also, the mouth movements. Yes. So, a big change is in, in the character of, of Mewtwo, where in the Japanese version, um, the portrayal of Mewtwo is, is more about earning the, their place in the world. Right, rather okay. Than 
then trying to prove how powerful he is. Yeah, in the, yeah. which is really interesting because um, that's basically a completely different viewing experience, really. Mm. Um, What's well, entirely different... Um, perspective on the character and, and the motivation yeah i don't know about you but i've never watched the japanese version of this film, no neither so. and i think we definitely in the la- in the last week i definitely rewatched the american version mm. as clear by your right there were quite a few differences between the two versions i never knew about and that was one of the big ones and uh it'll be fun to get into some more of them later in the show but yeah no i, I didn't realize how much this childhood film of mine played out so differently on other parts of the, than the world there you go. Well, Very Jake, interesting. Mm. I'm going to take a guess it's not on the poster behind me. Oh, you sound confident about that, Zeke. Yes. But the 1,100 films behind you that you must watch before you die. I just feel like it's not really like a cine-buff film, even though apparently right. it was the highest-grossing animation film in America at a time. Yeah, which is... yeah, which that kind of blew me away. But I guess it makes sense, because, I mean, 1998, when this came out, that very much the height of Pokemon populence or popularity i suppose uh no you are correct it's not on the poster zeke mm. <laughs> i generally thought there was a chance it would be and in all honesty purely because of the, the pokemon name and brand and the in the importance of that brand as well as some of the really deep themes explored not just the norse mythology stuff i actually would maybe put this on my poster maybe i probably would yeah i put it on just because of the nostalgic ties sure. sort of sits in the um growing up with this film what i find really interesting and we won't talk too much about it is sure. although it's you know um pokemon battles are a prominent feature mm. in pokemon yes this film has like next to no pokemon battles no. it's a very character driven film not only that it it some of its themes are almost kind of go against the entire concept of the show, which is which is Pokemon battling it out and mm. fighting each other, it's, it's going to be very interesting no <laughs> to discuss it. I will say before we move on as well, I noticed another little thing wedged at the very bottom of the IG, uh, IMDb trivia, which was that the Now Playing podcast reviewed this film, Z. Can you believe it? Hmm. Can you believe I'm uh, sorry, but wild. I saw that and I was like, okay, come on, guys. We know what you're doing here. Yeah. You're promoting your podcast on this IMDb. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I'm not, we're not going to go on, we should go on 200 trivia. films and put in... Click, uh, so, the, the, the Cinema Sideshow reviewed this podcast, uh, this movie. Uh, watch it on Spotify. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like plugging. Come on, guys. I know what you're doing. Taking a podcast shot. Love it. <laughs> I don't even know who they are. So, Jake, what have you caught in the last week? So, I caught a few things. Yeah, cool. I'll start off with a film I'm very excited to talk about, mm. but also kind of don't know how to talk about this without spoiling it, because, of course, I'm referring to Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery. Mm. So, very limited run in cinemas. By the time you're listening to this, you've pretty much already run out of your chance to watch it. It ends on, on Tuesday the 29th, mm-hmm. and then now we have to pretty much wait until Christmas Eve to watch the film on Netflix, which is a bit disappointing, because, I mean, the film is absolutely... Fantastic. I mean, you know me, Zeke. Yeah. I love Ryan Johnson. Yes, you do. Love the boy to death. Absolutely. He can do no wrong. <laughs> don't agree, but sure. <laughs> no, but there is there is generally a huge amount of pressure going to a film like this where like, the original Knives Out was... like People were almost shocked at like how mm. just renowned this film is, how clever and fun 
this film is the fact that everyone i know people who think the last jedi is the, the most disgraceful thing that's happened on this planet you know including covid19 who are like yeah knives out's great like it, it's kind of amazing what the film was able to do with the reputation of its director at the time mm-hmm. so even with that in mind going into glass onion it's like there is a lot of pressure and i think not only is i mean ryan johnson just completely nailed it again in terms of an incredibly fun mystery with great characters and a great cast. Mm-hmm. Um, visually, it's very stunning. There's so many great little tricks and nods he does with the camera. There's one particular cool moment where it's split screen of different characters on a phone together, and the the literal line that creates the, the split screen almost goes in a clockwise uh, direction that to adjust for the camera movement that's mm-hmm. happening in that coverage. And there's little things like that. I'm like, that's so clever. I don't see anyone else doing this kind of stuff. But the mystery itself, I've just been thinking about it for days straight. Mm. I'm like, it's just so intricate. And admittedly, at times, a little soap opery. Okay. There's a couple of things, and I'm like, some people are really going to hate this because it's a little too on the nose, a little too silly. But I'm like, pretty much all of Ryan Johnson's films have an element of silliness in them. Mm -hmm. And I know a couple of people have said they think it's a little bit it thinks it's smarter than it actually is, which I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. I think the experience is just kind of fun enough that it doesn't feel wanky in that sense. Yeah. Um, and I just personally love that it kind of continues the social commentary of the first one, which was sort of a dig at billionaires and, and you, what is owed versus what is earned. And this takes in a bit of a different direction where it's a little bit more entrepreneurship. And it is shocking with everything that's happening, like Elon Musk the last few weeks, mm. and obviously Facebook, and just all, and the, the very public buffoonery from these multi billionaire business owners, entrepreneurs, and the, this film almost feels like it was written as a direct response to that. Yep. But it kind of hits this wider note of, you know, anti, um, not even anti establishment so much trying to figure the right way again i don't really want to spoil it because i feel like if i give too much of a little bit of a hint it kind of ruins a lot of the surprises in the film mm. but i i just loved all of that and i loved again that the original has that twists mm. and we won't spoil it here most people have seen knives out but there's a twist that happens about what 20 minutes you'd say into the movie yep where the the element of mystery is completely changed it was like oh okay now the story's from this perspective and we know all this information about the murder that you know, ends up getting subverted anyway by the yeah. end. But this film has a sort of a similar twist that recontextualizes the whole story and the whole film happens much later in the film, which I think was quite interesting and really mm. pushing it. But again, it's so hard for me to talk about this without spoilers. I think it's fantastic. I can't wait for more people to see it. Well, it's going we'll to be a great discuss time. discuss it in the next couple of weeks. We will. We most certainly will. Now, the other one I saw was part of Andy's uh, movie night. Mm-hmm. We picked schlock horror as the genre. And we just ended casually. Up, just casually, as you do. And we ended on a film called Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, 1978. Now, the title of this film, Zeke, mm-hmm. it's, uh, <laughs> I don't think you would have high expectations no. for a title of, of this. And I think I was pleasantly surprised at how much I authentically enjoyed this. And not even in the sense of, like, you enjoy watching The Room because it's so terrible. Mm-hmm. I was watching this in the, in the same way that I would watch something like Airplane, where 
once you get how purposeful all the humor is in this film and like the schlocky aspect of it is fully intended yeah it the humor just hits so well it's like this is actually really hilarious because what it ends up being is and it references Hitchcock's The Birds quite a lot and it, it has references to Jaws and things like that and at first it kind of seems like oh they're using that as like oh well people laughed when they saw The Birds people thought Hitchcock was an idiot when he made that film and then it, it, now it's a classic I thought it was like an excuse of well look look at this now you have to think of our film as a classic mm-hmm. when it's like no in actual fact I think this film's more comparable to Kubrick's Doctor Strangelove in that it's social commentary and parody of government agencies and bodies in the face of a big threat that mm-hmm. you know, threatens to destroy the world. And in this case, it's, it's Amado's becoming sentient and killing people. I think it actually showcases that in such a hilarious, interesting way. And it's like, it's not uncomparable to the COVID crisis we had just a few years ago, where it's mm. all about the buffoonery of, mm. you know, yes, these... I, I did like the bubble. <laughs> The bubble. Oh god! Yeah. Before actually, that reminds me. There's a few cameos in in Glass Onion that are fantastic, and they kind of do give a little bit of the bubble vibes in their randomness. But I think part of it works well because the cameos are their actors playing roles, mm-hmm. and I don't want to spoil any of the cameos. But it's like, oh my god, it's such and such, but he's not playing such and such. He's playing this specific character with this specific role and. He's in it for two seconds and does this and makes you laugh and then bounces. Bounces. So comparatively to the bubble where that has, God, that that film's like unwatchable. Oh yeah. (laughs) It's a tough. It's a tough set. No, it's not good. But anyway, back back to Killer Tomatoes. Um, yeah, I just thought the commentary on you know these government figures, the incompetency of it, the fact that the film is littered with advertisements. There's like scrolls on the bottom of the screen promoting things, um, which is very Simpsons movie esque. But it also feels like well that's that's what they would do in the face of an emergency instead of using this technological feed of radios and televisions uh, to warn people of crises they're just going to play ads for things there's musical numbers that are intentionally horrible where there's no blocking and there's no camera movement it's just a musical number happening on the spot for five minutes to use the runtime but it all feels so like purposeful to this idea and this theme so I generally loved it and it, and again it's like the, the actual the title of Killer Tomatoes, that all looks horrible. Yeah. It's all off screen, all the violence. There's a stop motion clip that looks really terrible. That looks terrible. But then you've also got a scene where a, a very real looking helicopter crashes in front of a bunch of main characters. And it's like, that almost feels like the filmmakers self-aware that they have the budget to achieve the Killer Tomato effects. But they were rather using on plane crashes and car chases because again, there's just like that extra layer of incompetency mm. the government plays into the role of these killer tomatoes. I generally loved this film. I thought it was really funny and really fantastic. What a surprise! I know I wasn't expecting that. So, I Loki have to recommend Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. There's three other films. I don't know if I can recommend those, but but just so you know, now Zeke. Yeah. What have you been watching in the last week? I haven't got much. I've mm. got one documentary. Um, it dropped in the last week. I think you did talk about it last week on the show. Uh, I uh, watched uh, Elvis one? Mitchell's oh. Is That Black Enough for You? Oh, okay. Which sort of follows the... It's a predominant uh, mixture of, of piece to camera and archival footage. And yep. it basically goes through the extensive 
history of 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 African American or Black cinema mm. in over you know sound in cinema over right. the over the twentieth century and um you know and it has an array of of different African American uh, actors talking like Samuel Jackson and Lawrence Fishburne and um it ends up being what I could only describe as a Elvis Mitchell who chooses to narrate mm. the entirety of the documentary and, and, and basically essentially gives us uh, an hour, a nearly two-hour video essay, basically. Okay. Essentially. <laughs> like what you would see on YouTube? Yeah. Honestly, it, it, it doesn't... The access of, obviously, um, screen actors and stuff definitely... Mm allows it to become a documentary. But when we have these big elongated periods where he talks about sort of the, the evolution of, of the African-American uh, actor, how they had to create roles, dramatic, melodramatic roles, and yeah. sort of the flag bearers for that being like Sidney Poitier. And, and it was really interesting and in how that transitions into uh, the blaxploitation era where... Um, people, you know, people were trying to commercialize the the being black, which you know we've we've seen Spike Lee discuss quite a, quite a bit over his films. Yeah. And obviously, he's quite late to the party, Spike Lee. You know, he's he doesn't come around to the late eighties, so um, it's really interesting watching stuff that you just have no clue about, yeah. like the you know the the history of 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 black cinema and. That ended up being an immensely engaging. For, as a film lover, you'll love it. Yeah. If you're a general goer, yeah, you probably would still find it intriguing, I guess. Um, film documentaries, like documentaries about film, right. no matter who the demographic are, really meant for other filmmakers. It's like watching the one about Spielberg's life where you mm. go through the whole catalogue of, of Spielberg films. It's really entertaining and engaging to me, but if you're not really into directors and the mythology and the, the theory and the and the the hidden meanings and you probably won't get nearly as much out of it i do admit it it's it's very engaging mm. um and is is segmented by decades so you can always pick it up and put it down quite easy right too. okay it's got quite a clear chapter select sort of mm. <laughs> structure to it what's well, interesting you say that because there are different you know, i'm trying to figure the top of my head i've seen the the uh, q8 i think it's called for tarantino's first eight films everything he did prior to once upon a time in hollywood which I think was made in like 2017 or 18, the, the doco, but it's like, from memory, I watched something like that and it feels quite like, oh, okay, I'm not getting a whole lot out of it because it, a lot of this just sort of feels like, you know, oh, I, I know what Tarantino's style is and I know what this film means to this mm. film and I know the connections. But for someone who isn't really much of a film goal, who doesn't know much about films or Quentin Tarantino, they might may watch that and get you know, a whole prefer of information and, and a mm-hmm. whole lot of intrigue from that. So I think you're right. It depends on the doco, which ones are so intricate and get so specific about, I mean, in your case, it's more about, you know, a, a group of people and how they're represented in film and how they've, you know, gone into the industry themselves as opposed to just a singular director and his works. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think it just depends on how much information and to what, base knowledge level that information is that will apply yeah. to either filmmakers or to, you know, general populace who kind of have a passing interest in movie but want to know more about it. So, yeah, it's interesting. 
It was basically just a video, one long video essay, <laughs> like someone's thesis, yeah. but like read aloud. No, maybe nothing wrong with that. If it's intriguing, engaging. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was. What about what are these other ones you've caught? Well, the only other thing I saw, and and I'll uh, like to beautifully segue this into career updates as well. Very nice. So uh, I attended the Murdoch Showcase, the Buzz. So of course, every year at the, at the end of the year, What's Murdoch the Buzz. The buzz. What's the buzz, man? What's the biz? Is Murdoch's annual showcase of well, it's it's their arts department. So there's obviously photography, um, stage performance. There's a bunch of things like that as well. I'm of course more focused on the film aspect, and I'm getting sort of diminishing returns going every year in the sense that it's almost at the point where I know no one who's made any of these films. Like I know Carmel, Dylan, Andy, of course, and that that ties into the the career update in a moment. But it's getting to that point where it's like, I can't really... I don't know many of these people. And it's a very clicky industry. Mm. I think... I will say this. I think... First off, Murdoch's got to get their shit together in general. They're still using the big blow-up balloon. The sound system is just like, I can't hear half the stuff. So it's like, a lot of the vagueness I'm going to talk about some of these films in, I attribute to that. The fact that the viewing conditions were just really bad. The fact that the popcorn machine was literally right behind me, popping the entire time. So I was like, I mean, they just need to get their shit together and start playing this in the Nexus or just in a building. Agreed. You decent sound system, a decent screen. Like, like just guys, what are you doing? Please. It's getting ridiculous. But every time people always complain about the color grade, every time, every filmmaker, like, Oh, look trap on there. And it's like, yeah, because they pick they pick this crappy little blob screen every year. Anyway, so they've got to get that sorted. But the actual, the technical side for the films, because we, we know this, there's always at least a couple of films that have like atrocious sound design or no sound mm-hmm. design at all, or it's a shot like so amateurly, am, amateurly, I guess is the word. Um, I can say this collection of 10 films was probably the most consistent in terms of they all looked very good and they all sounded very good. Oh, so good. that was fantastic to see because there's always at least one or two outliers. Um, I'll quickly rattle through them. I actually, I'm not even going to bother with, they played three first year dramas. So The Weight, Submerged and Out of the Blue respectively. I don't even remember much about any of these. Again, they're mixing 90 second films with these 12 minute films, which I don't think is a good idea unless the film is like excellent. And none of these, frankly, were. There's one where a student comes home and finds a letter on a dad's, um, like, tabletop and finds out that he has cancer. And it's, like, the film ends before she even has, like, a reaction to it. So it's, at that point, it's like, okay, well, they're picking storylines for 90 seconds that they don't have time to flesh out. Mm-hmm. So it, it kind of just goes over my head there. And the third year films, which I played towards the end, again, I didn't actually get a lot out of these. Partly, I do blame the viewing conditions. There's Egress, which I think was um, what Carmel Fox produced. Mm-hmm. Very surrealistic footage. That actually went up to the Lancelin Sand Dunes, oh, which okay. is quite far. Because my thinking is, oh, they're going to the Salt Lakes. Mm-hmm. That's like everyone's go-to. It's like, oh, they actually went the extra effort. It looks like a true, honest-to-God desert. And they're kind of... I know you did a similar thing with one of Cass's films. Where I think it was was it a bed that you put on the beach or... Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they had like an open doorway that they planted on the in the sand, so... It was brutal. <laughs> Not fun doing that? No. Nah. Oh, God. So I, I appreciated the surrealism of all that. Um, they also played Lovers and a film called Sidelines, which I, that was about two sisters that are sort of 
bonding over the death of their mother through cooking and they sort of have this cookbook that I think the mother wrote. Again, tough viewing conditions. I mm-hmm. generally couldn't really follow what was going on. Um, Murdoch, you got to get your shit together. But I will say, I really enjoyed all three second-year films. Two docos and... Uh, sorry, one doco and two dramas. So Ladybug was basically the father, an exploration of dementia through the eyes of well, really both characters, sort of a, this middle-aged man and, mm-hmm. and the older mother. And, you know, playing with the edit a bit, where it's a bit surrealistic and we're sort of like jumping between cuts, which is interesting. And again, it's just the father, but I also like seeing that influence being there because the father's an excellent film. Yep. And I'm sick of students just talking about Marvel when it's like, I don't even think even students watch Marvel anymore. Like, let's stop pretending this is still a thing. Um, El Plater, which was actually friend of the show Dylan's film, which he wrote and directed. And I actually quite enjoyed this quite a lot. I thought they were ripping off VFobia for a minute. With that title, but it actually ended up being a deeper story Speaking about of excellent first year films. I know, I know. I mean, I I generally think that along with the um, the short film about the the couple with the balloon that def- deflates and that's like the passing. I thought that was a fantastic first year short from our year. Um, so they they do exist. There's great great first year films out there, but I really like this one because it it had a very clear sense of the relationship between the father and the and the son and him sort of being anxious to learn how to drive, but how it ties into, again, bad viewing conditions. But the assumption I made was that the mother passed away because of a car accident that ties into his inability or want to learn how to drive. Mm. Again, that's me trying to interpret for all the terrible viewing conditions. Um, so I really like that. And probably my favorite was the second year doco, Injustice, which was about um, like assaults on women and... Mm-hmm. and um, what it's like in WA in particular to go and actually report these crimes and, and to basically report on the men who do these things. And I thought it was really fantastic. They got a couple of great subjects who went very deep into their experiences. Very anti-McGowan, which, hey, I I love to see politics in, in local short films. Um, let's do it. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we, we put McGowan on a pedestal for the COVID response a lot of us do. But at the same time, some of the stuff that I didn't realize was general knowledge and generally accessible in other mm-hmm. states but not WA in terms of reporting these crimes I was shocked and I think that's what a docker like this is really good at is sort of laying out things that you wouldn't otherwise know about the experience yeah um, so I thought that was really great and they tied it in with the visuals of, of you know the ballet and I guess tying the the um you know motion with that so yeah there was some great stuff in there now this ties into the last film I'm going to talk about from this Murdoch showcase, which is actually the first film they played, which is Andy Newcomb's PhD film Chapman Station. So I checked. I was on this shoot. This was episode 137 when we did a net. And uh, <laughs> listening back to that podcast, wow. yeah, we had some things to say about a net. <laughs> but that's how long it goes back to. That when... was a long time ago. That was a long time. It feels like it, doesn't it? So that was when uh, the film was shot, and I was on there doing behind the scenes. I'm uh, very happy to see they, they split up the D and the Agrella in the credits, finally. How <laughs> many people figured to do that? But yeah, I thought it I thought it was really great. I had seen a cut several months ago, and then this is like a nearly finished cut. I think there's like mm-hmm. a sh- couple of shots that need some grading, or extra grading, I should say. And, and I think the songs, because a lot of the music in the film was recorded on location. Yeah. You know, it's the actor with the guitar actually singing, so it's all location audio they're using. I think... Right now, they just have, like, MP3s in the track, and I think they want to swap them out with proper mixes. So there's little bits of work to do like that, but generally the film's there, 
and I was very happy with how the pacing turned out. I think it's really wonderful. Again, the, the another father-son dynamic there, but through this family farm and the the wider culture of this small rural town post bushfire and coming together to rebuild um, not only you know buildings and fences, which I mentioned in the film, but just like the community spirit. Mm. Um, so I think there's a lot of great aspects in there. And even so, I was talking about you know, uh, I'm not a nurse. A few what a couple of months ago, when they played that, yeah. And I was talking about how I was disappointed when I was there. I saw a lot of the scenes they shot that weren't in the final film, and I felt the film lacked by not having those scenes in there. Now, for this film, there were a few scenes missing for a totally different reason, for a reason I definitely can't go into. But they had to cut some stuff, which was very unfortunate. But nevertheless, still made it really work. The pacing felt very natural. It's a great story, and I can't wait to finish my BTS of it. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> so look out for it, Chapman Station. Very exciting. Well, I guess it's time for us to move into our film of the week, Jake. Hmm. But what are we watching? This week on the show, Zeke, we're watching Pokemon, the first movie. An unstoppable new enemy. We dreamed of creating the world's strongest Pokemon, and we succeeded. mysterious invitation you have been chosen to join a select group of pokemon trainers at a special gathering sets ash and his friends on a dangerous voyage to confront a formidable pokemon humans may have created me but they will never enslave me the clone shall inherit the world you can't do this I won't let you. The strange, wondrous tale of the boy who stands against one of the most powerful Pokemon of all. The reign of Mewtwo will soon begin. The adventure explodes into action with the debut of Mewtwo, a bio-engineered Pokemon created from the DNA of Mew, the rarest of all Pokemon. Determined to prove its superiority, Mewtwo lures Satoshi Pikachu... Satoshi? Who's Satoshi? It's like the... It's the Japanese version. Ah. Ash, let's say. Pikachu and others into a Pokemon match like none before. Mewtwo versus Mew. Super clones versus Pokemon. It's an ultimate showdown, and the very future of the world is at stake. Yeah, Satoshi is... Yeah, the, the, I guess, Ash's name. Otherwise, Rika Matsumoto, also in Perfect Blue, which I've never seen. Hmm. Yeah, some interesting facts for you about yeah. Pokemon. But yeah. I'm um, really happy we're doing this. Yeah. <laughs> Next one up's Yu-Gi-Oh! The first movie. Yu-Gi-Oh! Oh, the movie. Oh, no. I think I have seen that, actually. It's great. I definitely had it on VHS as well. You know what's funny when we were talking off off air? It's like, yeah, this this film and Yu-Gi-Oh! the movie were probably my most rented blockbuster. Weekly, oh, interesting. I'd say. Yeah, wow. Um, we went through a lot of the Pokemon movies and then obviously ended up owning them on, on VHS. And, yeah. Um, 
DVD. My sister has one of those massive box sets of like I think it's the first four regions of Pokemon. Oh, okay. It was awesome. Yeah, my brother's got a bunch of those box sets in his room. Yeah. He probably has the Blu-ray of this. I probably should have asked. Mm. Oh, I didn't need to. Yeah, no, I mean, this is definitely a staple in both of our childhoods. It probably means, I would say it probably means a bit more to you than it means to me. I mean, I watch this film over and over and over again. I love Pokemon and I watch the first, what would you call it, season, I guess, over and over. Like, you'd say yeah. the season that precedes this movie. Is that how yes. it works? Yeah. yeah. The, the, the Kanto region. Gotcha. Um, and you're probably going to have a better memory than me on, on a lot of the show. I mean, it, was like, it was actually Mum that was reminding me of certain plot points because I was I was saying before we were watching this, I was like, I'm trying to remember, I remember Ash being obviously very young. That's sort of the joke is that he's forever young. Forever mm. young. And also very, um, like, eager mm. and impatient about when he become the, you know, the greatest Pokemon trainer yeah. in the world. And then she was the one that reminded me. It's like, well, he was late. And that's why Pikachu's his starter Pokemon. Yeah. I was like, oh my god, you're right. That's I've watched true. that first episode. You call it that. It's nearly an hour, the first episode. But Really? Yeah, it's two oh. It's two episodes. I think. Oh, okay. I see. Yeah. It's a, a, an extended episode. Um, and it's, yeah, it's really good, that first episode. Oh, I should have watched it again before the movie, but, but you almost don't need to. I think what's interesting about this movie, re-watching it, First off, kind of bold that Ash, Misty, and Brock, who, um, you know, the promotion of this film is obviously heavily leaning into those characters you loved from the show, as mm. well as, like, that. The OGs. The OGs, and, like, that version of Pikachu and, and all their starter Pokemon and whatnot. That the film doesn't really... They're not really introduced until, like, 45 minutes in. If you include, and we have to include, Pikachu's Vacation... Which I, I never really realized is like, oh, that's like a short. Mm, that's a like kind, a Pixar short. Yeah, that's like not really related to the movie, but you, you always did because it was part of the VHS. Which I guess they were just trying to pat the, the timing. I'm guessing they played that in cinemas as yeah. well. Um, no, they didn't. And the other one, the Meowth really? uh, short, that how Meowth comes to be. Oh, another one too. I vaguely two. remember that. Oh my yeah. God, you're right. See, this is just like me like remembering things <laughs> about this film. But the other thing, and you mentioned this earlier in the trivia, the fact that like the Japanese version is actually quite different to the English version and, and that Mewtwo's portrayed very differently mm. and has very different motivations. I didn't realise that his whole backstory with Amber 2 and learning about the, the, the teary um or the sorry, the starry like tears and that whole thing was not in the original theatrical release, which is mind-boggling to me because that yeah. is potentially the best part of this whole film, yeah. dare I say. I And, and it, again, it contributes to the running time where you spend 45 minutes firstly seeing this short film with Pikachu and all the other projects, which in and itself is great visual storytelling because there's so few words being spoken. And it's also that accessibility thing. You know, you're taking like I said at the time this is the highest selling um, American animation mm. film and then on top of that it's like so you got a bunch of parents that have their kids that are obsessed with this yep. but you've got to think of that accessibility thing where it's like they're going to go and they're going to know all of these characters but mm. the, we've got to still present a product that the parents will sure, want to buy it, follow yeah. well follow and then want to then invest if you look at it commercially you know 
they don't get the movie they might not buy the the vhs when it comes out sure or, all the merchandising all the merchandising a huge part of this yeah so you know that the, the, the putting that short at the front is basically like these are all the pokemon that are going to be relevant to the the film you're about mm, to watch yeah in a fun light-hearted way but even the themes it almost does the same themes that the film does or at least a lot of them in a completely different way where mm. it's showcasing here are a bunch of Pokemon all sort of not stranded but like put in this you know so-called vocation and let's see how they all play with each other and, and, and it starts out as um, competitive and they do racing competitions and whatnot but then it turns into a cooperative thing where they learn to sort of work together you know to, is it Charizard that that's the evolved mm. version whose head stuck in the pipe and they have to work together to free him and it's like it's kind of doing a lot of that same thing i mean the narration which like you said i think that's the one of the only things added to the american version was that narration where it like refers to the pokedex and like translates pikachu be, you know saying oh we gotta look out for the the baby kind of a a, a baby yoda sort of yeah. storyline there going on <laughs> but other than that it is obviously very um visual but the themes are also expressed in sort of this cooperative thing and the narration says i actually wrote it down that pokemon don't usually battle outside of when their trainers direct them to and that they prefer cooperation over confrontation and it's like these are all themes in the main feature that is going to come after this short film yeah so very clever way to tie it in both the audience sense yeah and then the thematic sense yeah but yeah so I guess that leads us into the the main. Frame. Well, and I I think like you said, this boldness like to to withhold from I mean uh, give us a little bit of that Pikachu character, but mm. to withhold us from the Ash, the Misty, the the essentially yep. the the essence of what the Pokemon show is, which is mm. you know it's battling, it's capturing, and and this film actively avoids those those natural tropes, and it's yep. real interesting where I be like. Uh, why I think this film stands on its own feet and is like, wow, this is a really good sort of precedent for what future movies are because a lot of the future movies follow suit with this. They're they're more about teaching lessons. They follow way more thematic principles, normal film conventions. They're all about telling stories just within the Pokemon universe, whereas the show is, you know, watch the show for the Pokemon battles. Watch it for the that sort right. of the video game that you love that's more that stuff whereas sure. these movies we're going to try and kind of deviate and and focus on like sustainability or in this one you know we talk about identity and mm. and it's really interesting because it's that this film really sets that precedent and it's why this film is so re- you know revered and has seen very positively whereas mm. something like Yu-Gi-Oh the movie which is just them dueling <laughs> which really isn't that. It's yeah. more of the, it's more of the same. Right. So if you like it, it's great. But in terms of for parents, it's yeah for for stakeholders, it's not like good narrative. Yeah. I guess. Um, it, well, that's it. It kind of works on its own. Like I, people can watch this without having seen the show. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're a little familiar with the Pokemon, and maybe they played some of the games on the Game Boy Advance and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But or oh, Game Boy Color, which yeah. is probably more our generation right there, um, because we're just so old, Zeke. So old. We're just so old. But, <laughs> and then there's Pokemon Go, I guess, which was the big sensation several years ago. Yeah. Mobile, which that was a whole thing as well. But I, I think the point is that Pokemon is, more so than most IPs, 
transcends all sorts of different types of media because not only is it a show and and movies and games they're trading cards yeah and and i'm guessing that was the original original inspiration was those trading cards. i would assume so yeah that or the video games and then they would have made the show Mm. based on one of those um mediums so with that in mind i think it is sort of important and i do think of the simpsons movie where and i was kind of shocked to hear this because this was what 20 years into the simpsons being Mm. a thing and being so popular in the overall american culture and zeitgeist that they wrote the movie for people who've never seen the simpsons before yeah and i thought that was such an absurd statement but i think there is an element to that that is very important especially for a film like this that labels itself the first movie well, I, I think it's important now it. because, you know, you take the Simpsons situation, like you said, you've got 20 years. Mm. Now, I, and I'll tell you this right now, I've probably maybe watched one episode of The Simpsons in yeah, my entire that's life. That's crazy. <laughs> so, and I've only seen parts of the movie, but, you know, coming into it now, it's like, where would I start? I'd probably just start with the movie because it's like, mm. you're introducing a bunch of characters, you basically are making them all caricatures of themselves, so people that have watched the show can enjoy them being their caricatures. Right. But as a consumer that's never watched the show, I can understand what's going on. Um, and I think it's what's really interesting is is this film takes its time to sort of explain evolution, explain how kind of Pokemon came to be through mm. the Mew the Mew 2 origin. Yeah. Um, gives us our, basically our Team Rocket, the ultimate villains of this, of this show. <laughs> gives the origin for that through you know giovanni being the like the head of team rocket is right that's right yeah, that's yeah, yeah. uh that's a whole thing um and we watch that dynamic and and sort of the, the frankenstein monsters mm. story which is very consumable and accessible for people that watch movies because we've all know the story of frankenstein so it's essentially what we see in the first part of this but to have, like yeah. you said, to remove all of your like titular characters and hold off for like 25, 35 minutes. Yeah. No, it's bold. It's crazy. And I, I really appreciate it. And like we sort of alluded to, I was like, I actually, I'm sure as a kid, that was probably the most boring part of the movie because I just want to get to my favorite characters. But rewatching it, realizing how many of the themes they set up so early, not just with, like you said, this idea of identity and consciousness and being born as a clone and not understanding where you come from, which, again, the Japanese version leans more into that mm-hmm. as opposed to, like, the want to be powerful, be the most powerful motivation that he has in the American version. But the idea of evolution and adding clones into the ecosystem, I mean, very Jurassic mm-hmm. Park-esque stuff going on there. But, again, like, the relationship he builds with Amber 2 in that opening scene where it establishes, like, the father is wants to you know bring his daughter back to life and that's why this cloning has begun and i just it shocks me that that wasn't in the original release because to me that is so crucial especially because mewtwo he's he's a hypocrite he's accusing pokemon trainers of being slave owners yet he's the one stealing pokemon cloning them using them for battle Mm -hmm. and it's like without the context of the relationship he builds I, i guess there's a younger version of himself where he learns what the sun is yeah. He learns what sadness is with the tears and and I gotta say that sequence as well is so beautiful because not only when he's he's looking at the sun and they sort of point that out, the overall um exposure completely like readjusts and the sky grows from white to blue. Which I thought was just a subtle little clue or like the world is wanting to open up to him, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's sort really. of forming in front of his eyes. And not only that, but then all the stars when Amber Two fades away, those fade away too. And it's like just the background 
visual storytelling when all these characters are in this limbo status. I just thought it was really beautiful, and I just cannot believe that that's not in every version of the film. Wild. And, and I didn't watch the whole thing, but we got to talk about this 2019 CG version <laughs> they made, <laughs> which I know is a... Got about halfway through, and I was like, I could not do it. Yeah. You can, yeah I don't I, get it. I don't get the point. There is but... no point. The, the style... I mean, uh, the style of the original... I mean, it's just anime style and... And there is this thing with anime, I guess, where there's, there's so many extended shots of characters like frozen still looking out into a water. And it's like, yeah, there's there's a lot of... I, I think that's just to do with like the anime production mm. schedule, especially with something like Pokemon that has thousands of episodes where it is pretty simply animated for the most part. Yeah. Um, and that extends to the movie. But nevertheless, that is the visual aesthetic of Pokemon we, we align with. And to take something that was created here in 1998 that people like us associate our childhood childhoods with mm-hmm. to make this ugly looking cg remake almost a shot for shot remake that guess what doesn't include any of the amber two scenes it jumps straight into mewtwo killing people and i'm like that's insane that's almost insane like it's to too me. yeah like it's too dark is that why do you reckon they've opted out of it what the thing I feel like it's darker without it because that almost that makes you sympathetic with this character. So when they wake up and and ask like who am I? You know how was I created? That that lingers on from the previous scene where you you understand the experience I had. And without that scene, you just open this movie. Oh, here's a clone we built. Oh, we just blew up the whole building. It's like I feel like that's darker because mm. there's less to sympathize with in that scenario. I don't know. I just. I was baffled because on rewatch that was the most astounding thing to me about this film is how effective that whole opening yeah. sequence was. Uh, yeah, just just crazy. It's it's and it's so interesting because like you get to the end of this sequence, obviously, um, he's manipulated into mm. very very dark side story. But yeah. after destroying the lab, then then that's when we finally get introduced to Ash, Misty, and Brock yeah. and. And you know it's in it's in the midst of their you know ashes run through uh, the Kanto region, and then you get that sweet sweet uh, title sequence um, oh, yeah. where we get to see one of the few traditional Pokemon battles, the only one I think um, in in the whole movie. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of just sort of sets the sets us back into that familiar territory. But yeah. I have to admit that that cover of that. I want to, the original Pokemon theme sure. is very. I always remember that and how how good that sequence is because mm. it it brings you back into that warm world. It really does, like. and it's also different enough to make you appreciate. Oh my god, I'm watching a movie, movie version like it's a it. different version. Yeah, it's this bigger, broader, not broader, but like this bigger, more epic version of the show I usually watch. So I do I do appreciate that, and I will say, as much as I was sort of laughing earlier about the the hypocr- the hypocritic nature of making this film very at its core very much an anti-violence film and that violence doesn't solve anything and you know um, our true nature comes from what's in our heart and obviously you've got the Mewtwo quote we'll get into later um and how hypocrite hypocritical that is because the whole show is about battles between Mm. Pokemon I will say though like you said that's the only one uh, portrayed in this film and it is quite light hearted it's during the day the stakes are very, very low. You know, you've got the music playing over it. And what it does showcase as well 
is very quickly i should add for even for those who haven't seen the show is that ashes seems like an underdog at first mm. because he's just got all these starter pokemon that haven't evolved yeah but there's this interpersonal relationship he holds with those pokemon that almost give them the upper hand in battle because there's almost a stronger rapport between trainer and pokemon yeah which becomes very important throughout the rest of the film as that well it's a relationship mm. isn't it it's um and it's a it's a current a, a common theme that runs through I mean the whole duration of the show where yeah. it's it's his relationship is like exceeds everyone else's and it's mm-hmm. that affirmation obviously he is quite simply he's a placeholder for for the viewer sure but or the um, game player on the you know, yeah the game of course Boy, yeah. yeah of course and it's like you know I don't know if you've seen the those that mini series of episodes where they just do red and blue like they base it solely around oh, the, I don't the think video so, game no. they're very good um but it's it's quite interesting yeah and it sets that precedent and obviously they get invited to this uh this tournament mm. um this fake tournament this fake tournament <laughs> um and when we meet a bunch of other like-minded uh, pokemon trainers that are braving a, a storm for some yeah. reason um, <laughs> they're just determined to be the best sick yeah like nobody ever was yeah it is, it is and it's <laughs> It's kind of it's kind of funny because it's like you get that's what I'm talking about with that accessibility there. They end up at a Pokemon Center and you see a Nurse Joy and an Officer yep. Jenny and <laughs> and you're just like, oh, this is your this favorites. Is, They're yeah. back, yeah, yeah. Brock's favorites. <laughs> uh, I have to admit, as someone who watched pretty tame though in this film, I would say, yeah, he's, he just calls say, him pretty. That's not too bad. The first four. <laughs> I've seen the first four um, series, but right. I think the Misty Brock Ash combo is is the best. Right, yeah, I reckon out of all of them. There's something I really like Misty. I always find it really funny. Yeah, no, it's a good, it's a Very good dynamic, boring. and like even you actually don't get much of it in this film because it turns serious pretty quickly. But but when they right when we meet them right at the very beginning, um, and the two Pokemon are playing around, and I think Brock's doing like a like a barbecue lunch yeah. or something like that. And Misty's yelling at Ash because he's complaining. Oh, I'm so tired. I haven't eaten in like two hours <laughs> since breakfast. You get a nice little hint of their dynamic just in that little scene there. Yeah, you are right, though. You don't get a lot. Like, not not in the same sort of rapport level, yeah, because things get serious so quickly. Yeah. Um, and they have to brave the storm. All the starters. comedy relief is like led to Jesse James and Meowth, mm. which is always great. The classic Team Rocket. Yeah. Just so funny. And it's like even just rewatching this, and like this, this is sort of my main memory of how they are, Team Rocket. It's like they're not overly incompetent. It's a lot of it is just luck, actually. Like they just seem to be like you know, even in in Pikachu's vacation, Meowth's like, ah, oh, I'm gonna just sleep and relax right in this specific spot where I'm gonna get attacked <laughs> by Pikachu and Raichu. <laughs> so it's like it's a series of those little comedic beats, but they have a great role in the story because it's not even just the comedic side of it but the, and they did the whole viking thing to get to get everyone over yeah. to the island but they're actually doing a lot of the discovery so while our heroes are upstairs talking to 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 Mewtwo and then that battle was playing out they're underground almost discovering yeah, this like collection the of clothes the plot. <laughs> yeah which is which is really clever i think and another little clever thing they do is when they're seeing the little monitor of the CG Pokemon going through, and they're, who's that Pokemon? It's Pikachu. Like, 
Okay. I see what you're doing. Nice. Well done. <laughs> it was very it was very good. Oh, just a um, nice way to tie it in. Which is funny because the Pikachu's vacation, almost every single little scene jump has an interstitial of like a different Pokemon doing something or like reacting to the camera or just some little thing to get you from one scene to mm-hmm. the next, which was interesting that they in the short they decided to really break up those scenes, but then in the film a reference to their like you know mid commercial break trivia game they actually embed it into the story as naturally as possible mm-hmm. so i thought that was quite interesting how they yeah. did that yeah and, it, and it's one of those things where it's you know it, it obviously takes a turn and becomes almost like a an, a dinner party drama because you know <laughs> when when they meet Mewtwo and it ends up being mostly back and forth about the ethics of where pokemon sit mm. and and what uh, are they enslaved? Are they not enslaved? What's the what is this power dynamic between humans and Pokemon? Is mm. is it uh, you know is are one is one subservient to the other? Um, and having that sort of ethical back and forth because for the most part, I mean that, that that's essentially at the core of what this movie is. Really, mm. is what is this you know, relationship and identity because. Um, Mew. Not not only for Mewtwo, but Pokemon as a species. Yeah, yeah and this big game of tournaments and battles. <laughs> that we don't even see. No, no. Yeah, yeah the same we complaint like, for Detective Pikachu. Get that, like, get... There's no battles. <laughs> yeah, but d- d- at least like with Detective Pikachu, it was like that moment where you do get that one battle. You're like, oh, I'm getting excited. This is, yeah, this, this, is, what it, this is what it this could is, be. This is what we're getting to. Let's go more this route. Yeah. I, just, I would want to see... You know, we're talking about that live action sort of style. I, that's what needs to be a series, a ten episode series, like. Right. And it could be a Detective Pikachu again. We could bring Ryan back if we have to, and. Uh, do we have to? <laughs> I would just like you just do a Stranger Things, you know, just do get bunch of kids to play, like do a like the proper Pokemon thing. Have a ten year old. Actually, okay. you know, like go Stranger Things route, yeah, you know? and create like a a mystery or something, a driving question, because mm. um, you can't just do capturing Pokemon, doing battles. It just doesn't work. Unless... Sure, yeah. I mean, that's I mean, the show spent how many thousands of episodes on this idea of like he yeah. wants to be the very best and get to the top. And I mean, that makes sense. I mean, look at Whiplash. <laughs> that's what that movie's all about, yeah. really. But I think you're right. I think it's smarter with this film in particular that it does sort of lean into... It's a, it feels very different. It's a very different kind of story. Yeah. And well, I mean, I mean, and then anything. And it obviously has a universality where it's like Pokemon are the closest thing we can associate in the real world is pets. Yes. Where we sit yeah. with pets. What do pets represent to us? Uh, they are... Like, we tell them what to do a lot. Mm. Much like trainers tell Pokemon. We... We even call ourselves trainers at time for an animal. We yeah. do train the animal, so it it comes back to. But where does that relationship like? Where's the codependency? Where does that come from? Yeah. Obviously. Well, there, there's that joke of like you know you, you own your dog when your cat owns you sort of <laughs> dynamic between these different species, and even the Pokemon themselves have different types. There's water based Pokemon mm-hmm. and obviously electricity based Pokemon and and telekinesis, as it turns out with this. But, yeah, you think about the relationship you have with your pets and that the, there is, like, a codependency there almost from one end emotionally but then the other, like, to feed them and to, you know, 
house my guess so yeah. a lot of animals don't necessarily need that but even like you know this morning like i woke up a good hour before my alarm did because my cat was just scratching the hell out of my door and it's like god i could kill her right now but i'm not because there's this like love between a person and their pet and that's what ash and pikachu really demonstrate in this film and mm-hmm. I, I mean that's where it comes from is mewtwo's upbringing i i don't know, I'd call it upbringing. It's a very short upbringing. <laughs> it's a few minutes long. It's non-existent if you yeah, watch well, certain versions. Yeah, yeah, well, there you go. But it's like that that motivates the start of his life and like his motivation throughout the story where he was born into something where he was uh, basically just a puppet and a pawn in this wider thing and humans created him and that was something that, that caused him to, you know, have this superiority complex, lack mm. of a better word. And, you know, it takes us to the end. I guess this is a good time now to talk about Ash's sacrifice, so to speak. <laughs> he gets blasted. He gets blasted good. But what I love about that is you have... Obviously, that's Mewtwo's, like, realisation mm. of, like, oh, here's someone willing to sacrifice themselves for not only the greater good, but, like, for their Pokemon. You have Pikachu's reaction to Ash's supposed death. Um, where that you know, that codependent relationship becomes more clear, and you, and, mm-hmm. you know, Mewtwo realizes, oh, it's not just a enslavement. It's camp. It's still or... one of the saddest close-up shots in history. <laughs> Pikachu crying, like crying Pikachu. Uh, could make that the thumbnail. <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that. It's interesting. Well, even I would argue, because obviously Mewtwo is like the perfect. What makes him actually a really good antagonist, and mm. probably the best in any any of the Pokemon movies I can remember off the top of my head. I think there's only one that I might put in the same category as this film, but is because he really is the perfect middle ground between Pokemon and human. Right. Because he's telekinetic, he speaks English. He's the only Pokemon that can do that. Right. Or Meowth can. Well, I don't know what's going on there. (laughs) It's like a Stewie situation. But that's sort of the... Yeah, exactly. But it's it's one of those things that's really special, like yeah. that he can speak because um, everyone's like, "Wow, it's a talking meowth!" Like that's a real, like rare thing to have. So yeah. to have this, and meowth's obviously not, very but he's smart. very goofy. Yeah, yeah very yeah. goofy. Whereas, you know, this this is a very like he's talking about some serious like ethical issues that yeah, he's exist very intelligent this, this and very powerful. And obviously, he's based off Mew, who can only much like every other pokemon just and it, like body language and just say their name yeah so it becomes this really cool sort of middle ground between like the what mewtwo represents he he thinks he's this heightened evolution of pokemon that's mm. now you know s- s- obviously self-conscious able to make their own decisions doesn't need a master yeah um he is the master yeah to so. a human to, to nurse but yes boy. he does Obviously, his, his downfall is he does exactly what he's he's hypocritical. Yeah, Animal Farm. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it, and it's a really it hits different that emotion. It still gets a reaction out of me when like Ash runs to the middle of the the arena. Yeah, no, because um, it's a very pure sacrifice, and all the scenes leading up to that, where all the characters are just so beating the crap. It goes out. from frustration to just sadness, where everyone's just sad at the violence that's playing out, and yeah, the scene where they're all fighting their own clones it's really impactful it's got the song brother my brother Oof. in there it's it's different every time you hear it it's a really good soundtrack i think it's only three yeah. or four songs but boy yeah no but they picked their source music 
really well. And that, that's I wonder what music was playing in the Japanese version, mm. if not these songs. I guess we'll never know. We're definitely talking about the American version exclusively yes. on this. <laughs> but on it's good. Yeah, obviously. It, I think that really epitomizes between this and watching you watch the pilot. Because the pilot's right. great with like how Ash and Pikachu hate each other. Right. And then through Ash's, once again, through his sacrifice when all of the Spearows are attacking mm. in the in the pilot while Pikachu's like critically injured. Um, such a good like pilot episode. That, right. That their relationship turns um, around, yeah. And you sort of capture that sort of essence here, but you have more of the Okay, but then why the do these why do why do these humans care so much about Pokemon? Yeah, because you know all 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 they know all Mewtwo reckons is oh they're just slaves they're just mm. you know well that's all he's ever seen up until this this point yeah, yeah. rough so he's never gonna forget it I mean it goes back to that line a little bit of an uncharted dig there I mean this came out first of course. Mm. He says, I see now the circumstances of one's birth are irrelevant. It is what you do with the gift of life that determines who you are. A little bit what Sully says to Drake and Uncharted 3, but it's okay. We don't need it. <laughs> you imagine? That's where he got. Oh, yeah. That's where he got. It went into the future line. and stole from Uncharted, yeah. And then Ash comes back to life through the tears and everything's all happy and dandy. Yeah, no, and look, <laughs> and the whole like Norse mythology connection to yeah. that, that's really cool. The thing that actually does bug me a lot, although I've, I've thought about this a little bit. Oh, he's got a grievance. i got a bit of a grievance. That none of the characters remember any of this at the end of the film. Mm. And I was surprised by that. And I was like, what was the point of that? Now, here's where my head's at with this. Because you obviously got you got Misty and Brock, one Ash, all three of them just have no recollection of the events that played out. Although Ash does see Mew for a brief second, and maybe that's like alluding to maybe he does have some memory of it. But the other thing, and this is when I thought of Avengers Infinity War, as you would, where it's like that film really only works when you consider Thanos as the actual protagonist. Mm-hmm. Now, you can have protagonists that don't change, they change the world around them, and that's what Ash does in this film. He changes the world around him, and he shows the good. Mm-hmm. Um, in the the economical relationship between human and Pokemon, and it changes Mewtwo. But if you look at it as if Mewtwo is the protagonist, we see his backstory. The film starts with him. It's all these actions that put everyone in the same island together. And then he's the one that has the realization. So if you look at it from his perspective, he's the protagonist of the story. Sure. Then it makes sense, because then at that point it doesn't matter if Ash forgets the events. All that matters is that Mewtwo has had a change mm-hmm. in his world perspective. But I think that's correct. Yeah? You that's think, exactly, I mean, yeah. even if you look... Okay, great example. Look at the cover art. It's yeah, not... It's yeah. not... Ash... I can't Ash. even find Ash in this. He's probably the dots in the centre with the, the beam. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I think that you might be right. And like we said... It takes like thirty-five minutes to get to these titular characters. Sure. So, yeah, he's the <laughs> one who invokes. He is the antagonist, but that he also invokes the change in our protagonist. Yeah. And this is a this is why protagonist antagonist doesn't isn't as clear as good guy bad guy. Sure, it just isn't. Um, well, it just I think you're right. One hundred percent right. Yeah. This is one of those things. Also, it's a first movie, and I think sometimes the 
maybe they didn't know how many more movies they'd go on to make. They're going to make a ton of different movies, but <laughs> in which Ash does remember those experiences. Right. But what becomes really interesting is is that yeah, maybe maybe that was the decision um, because there's this there are these five or six Pokemon trainers that now know of this Pokemon that no one else knows exists right. exists. Um, it definitely felt like a, they needed some sort of status quo re-engaged for the series. Yeah. But even then, it's like, the, you could have done some of that where they're like, oh, we saw Mew. We we saw Mew. We, we Not extinct at all, and nobody believes them. They could have gone down that route. Yeah. But, yeah. Like I said, you, we look at it from the perspective of Mewtwo as the protagonist of the story, which the movie is called Mewtwo Strikes Back. So we It kind of does it. work. From that perspective, implies that uh, uh, what's it called? Implies that it almost feels like that this is the second movie. I know that title, yeah. It, I think of Vampire Strikes Back, like, yeah. Uh, but they make it very clear the first movie. Mm. Yeah. Do we have uh, anything else we'd like to add, Jake? Um, let me see. What else is? I mean, we talked about Mewtwo's hypocrisy, if you will. Um, another observation I made, along with like the CGI models on the television, the CGI doors. I mean, those were later additions as well. I think they added that after. Mm-hmm. But tell me if you notice as well, when the stadium floodlights switch on, mm-hmm. is that a lightsaber noise? I think that's a lightsaber noise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like... It's like very, very Star Wars-esque. Oh, like, I think it might be. To the point, I'm pretty sure that is what that is, I'm hearing. <laughs> I bought the rights to a... Yeah, no, expensive. I mean, hey, bloody um, Ryan Ryan bloody did it in what was it? What was that crap movie? What was it? What's it called again? I keep wanting to say Ready Player One. That Ready Player One. No, no, the other um, one, the uh, other one. Uh, Free Guy. Free Guy. Yeah, that one. <laughs> they did it there for, Free for no reason God. at all. But damn. Oh goodness. Anyway, but yeah, no. Well, what was your highlight scene, Zeke? Um. Ooh. I really like the prologue. Mm. I really just like that prologue sequence. Um, it is tonally, if you're a Pokemon fan, like a complete shift. Because particularly the first season mm. of, of, of Pokemon does have some really hefty emotional moments. Sure. And that becomes... I actually do think it gets like yeah more lighthearted the longer it goes on. Um, maybe that's just kids growing up in the world's changing mm. and while ash stays the same um <laughs> but yeah i really like the prologue sequence i think it's um it's actually very stylistic i mean you just went through some of the really good takeaways like the the way that we're seeing and i really do think that puts the emphasis on why and a fair argument to why Mewtwo's the protagonist of the story right because you know we we follow the story with amber two um and how and how Giovanni manipulates him and um into the power and then the revenge mm. and the Frankenstein's monsters out. Yeah. And he sets this precedent, he sets this Thanos esque mm. mission for himself. Yeah. Um and our titular characters come along and try and uh try and prevent it. Um which makes them the antagonist. So yeah. 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 Um that that opening sequence I reckon it's very stylistic for Pokemon, of that time especially. Yeah, yeah, it feels really epic and explorative, and and like in terms of the law building, which again as a kid I couldn't care less about, but 
for me it was really the themes explored in, in mm. just those few sequences that yeah just really powerful stuff mine would probably be sort of I would say like the midpoint of the uh, the fighting specifically mm. or when I guess when they lose the first fight and is it Charizard that loses and then that's when Mewtwo starts mm. throwing out all the balls of like I'm now going to like capture all your Pokemon yeah that whole sequence that leads to the chase between Pikachu and all the balls up the spiral staircase there's something about that staircase, like the visual design of it, the yellow. It's just, it's really yeah. pleasing to me. I don't know why. And compared to the CG version that 2019, I I watched that clip and it it's just like a boring black staircase. I'm like, what have they done? While this, they sort of play with the the perspective because there's the lines there that infer that they're steps, but then also Ash is sliding down. So it's it's kind of this interesting, you know, paradoxical design mm. going on there. I always just found that really exciting. And, like, when Pikachu's just exhausting himself, electrocuting all the balls, like, group by group, it's, like, it's, it's yeah, it's it's powerful and exciting Absolutely. and scary. And and that leads all the way through to the underground sequence and then the the cool, they all survived and they're walking out of the dust patch and that's just cool. Yeah. It's so cool. Come on. Get yeah, out of big, here. That big war fight moment. Yeah. <laughs> It's great. It's so well done. It is. So, uh, Ebbs and flows. Well, Pokemon first movie is currently out on Apple TV Plus and wide oh, release. Really? That's what it says. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I I thought you can only rent it from like YouTube and. Oh, it's, it says go. Apple TV Plus on my. Uh, oh well, there you go. My device. On your device, you can also buy. I think it might be a Black Friday thing, but you can buy the first three movies as part of a Blu-ray box set for just twenty-five bucks. So it is pretty cheap to get these films on home release. So that's what I would recommend, if you dare. Now, Zeke, mm-hmm. coming to streaming and cinemas. Yes. Not a lot. Not a lot. Not a lot. Not, not overly exciting. You've got more stuff to come. Exactly. But you do have a CG animated version of Diary of a Wimpy Kid. Roderick Rules coming to Disney+, Plus. so I guess that's a whole series now, those CG Wimpy Kid films. Uh, coming to Prime, you've got Moonlight, Firestarter, I'm guessing the new one. Uh, the Mark Wahlberg film, Father Stew, which is probably a meme. I actually don't know what people think of it. Coming to Netflix, you have a new animated adaptation of Scrooge, A Christmas Carol, which stars Luke Evans, Jesse Buckley, and Olivia Colman. Also, The Batman. Would you look at that? There you go. Uh, leaving the old comfy binge HBO aesthetic to end up on Netflix. Mm. Very exciting. And coming to cinemas, to kick off, we have two musical documentaries, Zeke. Two. Two. See, these could be right up your alley. First one takes us to 1971 to experience the creation of Neil Young's Harvest album, aptly called Neil Young Harvest Time. Then we jump a few years later to The Angels Kicking Down the Door, which journeys the Aussie band's path to international success until they miss their chance. Ooh. Love me one of those. That's good. And what are those coming to? Uh, well, in cinemas. In cinemas. You have to trek. You have to trek, Zeke. I'm sorry. I'm okay with you, that. You got to pay for the ticket. Also coming, you got Violent Night, the new David Harbour Christmas themed action comedy film. I'm actually keen for this. A lot of people are keen for this. Yeah, it's gonna be fun. It looked. I, I never. As someone who's now seen that trailer, I think twice. I'm like, oh, yeah. this is just Santa Die Hard, isn't it? <laughs> Essentially. <laughs> Basically. And to be fair, David Harbour is. Obviously, warm to our hearts as uh, as Hopper yep. in Stranger Things, but there's something about his delivery, um, even in this trailer. I'm like, mm. and to make John was it, it, John Lu- oh Luigi, Luigi from Super Mario Bros. Yeah, Luigi Amo. 
as the as the Hans Gruber. Ness somehow oh, here for okay. it. Oh, okay, that's that's good. That's yeah, good he'll be a good he'll be a good uh, villain, I think. Um, I it's think a clever John idea. Wick. I'm is actually it, legitimately. It yeah, it's a yeah. John Wick because he's Santa. in John Wick too. Is he? Yeah, well, in the first one at least. Who's he in? He's. I think he's a friend of John Wick's, or is he on the other side? Oh my god, I, I can't think remember John Wick's I think he's in the first two. I reckon. I can't remember him. I think Willem Dafoe's in he's the first one. Yeah, 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 Willem Dafoe is the first that, one. Yeah. yeah, he's great in it too. Yeah, those died movies too, are great. Die too young in the movie. Yeah, he's yeah. Alive. Willem Dafoe dies a lot in movies though. <laughs> like he did not have a good. Um... Yeah, he died in the first Spider Man. He did like four more. <laughs> well, isn't it like so? John Hurt's obviously late. Um, rest in peace, John Hurt. But he's he's got the most. Highest body count, like most deaths. Right, okay. You know. No, William Hurt, sorry. sorry. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, that tracks. Pretty sure. Good old William Hurt. Didn't he? He passed away recently, didn't he? He did this year. Yeah. That's sad. Yeah, that's right, because I, I remember they're going to replace him in the MCU. That's the, that's, of course, that's what I referred to, the Marvel thing. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's cool. That's very yeah. exciting. Compro- Compromat. It's another French film. About a diplomat forced into action when a larger plot orchestrated by Russia's FSB accuses him of a terrible crime. Mm. You got another another French film called Stars at Noon with a more uh, recognizable cast, at least to us. You got Margot Qualley uh, as a young American journalist stranded in Central America who falls for an Englishman who seems to be a best chance of escape. It also stars John Owen and Benny Safdie. Oh, all the Safdies. Yeah, no. Apparently, John C. Riley's in this too. But there might there might be like a cameo situation. Mm. I don't know what's going on there? Interesting. And it said Google said Robert Patterson, but I couldn't find any proof of that. That can't possibly be true. Yeah. But we shall see. Interesting. And finally, uh, Hoyt's are previewing Roald Dahl's Matilda the Musical this Sunday the fourth, which is Matthew Warchus's adaptation of his own Tony Award winning musical. Oh. So there you go. He gets to direct the show and the movie. Good Very for intriguing. Him. Very yeah. intriguing. Well, we're not catching any of those next week on the show, are we, no, Jake? No, no. We're going to the cinemas for another reason, though. Yes. But, Jake, what are we watching? Next week on the show, Zeke, we're watching Bones and All. There's a lover in the story, but the story's still the same. There's a lullaby for suffering and a paradox to blame. I didn't know I had permission to murder and to maim. You want it darker. We kill the flame. You don't think I'm a bad person. He made me. You look like the kind that's convinced himself he's got this under his thumb. He but you pull on one little thread and... I'm ready. My lord. Magnified, sanctified, be the holy name. Vilified, crucified in the human frame. You want it darker. We kill the flame. set you free a blossoming romance develops between a disenfranchised drifter and a young woman on the margins of society so I mentioned this I think last week 
So it came to cinemas very recently. Mm. And um, I I mean, we saw the trailer for Ahead of Something. Oh, God. Yeah, what it was it odd. playing? Whoa. Oh, it might have been the Halloween film we were watching. I think so. Yeah. And um, looked good. God, I forgot we looked very good. Didn't we? Didn't yeah. <laughs> and it's uh, reviewing very well. Mm. So it's exciting. Very exciting. Good, good cast. cast. Yeah. Yeah. Well, until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Slide Show podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with Bones and all. <laughs>